Well, good morning, Austin Oaks Church. Good morning. My name is Josh Broccolo. I'm on staff here at the church. Uh, just want to say welcome. Thanks for being here together with us this morning. Um, and if you're tuning in online, thanks for making us a part of your morning as well. Uh, we've been worshiping God together. So now we're going to move into a time where we read his word. We see what he has to speak to us this morning. Um, here at Austin Oaks Church, we are simply about Jesus. We're going to be talking about that a lot this morning. Um, our mission is so that everything that we do is so that you would meet know and follow Jesus. And one of the primary ways that we learn where we first meet Jesus, where we uh, know more about him, and where we learn to follow him is in the Bible, through the scriptures. Uh, We believe that it is God's word, that he has actually spoken it, um, and he has something to say to us today, even this morning. Uh, Some people think that the Bible is just a rule book, that, uh, you know, it's just a list of do's and don'ts. If you're familiar with the Old Testament laws, something something like that. Um, Others say that it's just too difficult to understand, that it's too archaic. And, uh, you know, it was translated from other languages, Greek and Hebrew and Aramaic. Um, And some of the newest portions of it are almost 2,000 years old. But it is relevant today because it is God's word. He does speak through it, and he even speaks into our lives here this morning. Um, The Bible is an amazing piece of literature. Um, We call it a book, but it's actually a collection of different books. It's 66 books. It's uh, about 40 different authors, and they all tell one story about Jesus. Uh, We say, as a church, we're simply about Jesus. The Bible is is also simply about Jesus. Um, But because it has so many different books, so many different writers from different times, it speaks in different ways. It uses different types of literature. So you get some poetry in there. You get some just historical narrative. um, You get personal letters as well. All kinds of different things. Um, And it takes different tones as well. A lot of the times we come to the scripture and, and uh, we think it's going to be super serious. You know, we have to really kind of dig into it. And I get it because we're going before God. Like God is revealing himself to us through what he has said through the scripture. And God is, you know, the God of the universe. So we do want to take it seriously. We want to come in humility as well. But every once in a while, it takes a different tone. And this morning, we're going to read in Acts chapter 12. And uh, there's something really unique about this passage this morning. It is the use of humor and comedy in this chapter that we're going to read. There's two stories that are kind of back-to-back where we see some kind of ridiculous things. Uh, We see some very human reactions as well, and it's in the midst of even some dire circumstances. Uh, What it tells me is that sometimes maybe we take ourselves a little bit too seriously. Uh, Maybe the things that we think are really important God is powerful enough to, to make it through, right? To make a way where we don't see one. And uh, maybe if we just trust God and walk out in faith and we follow after him, he's going to take care of the rest. Um, well, it's going to be a, a fun time here reading these two stories, so I want to jump right in. Before I do that, let me just pray for us in this time that God would speak to us this morning. So, Lord, we come to you first and foremost. Um, We want to hear you speak this morning. And we know you will. We know you do through your word. So give us 
ears to hear from you and a heart that accepts what you have to say. Um, Lord, your word is truth, but don't let us leave it uh, back in the first uh, century church or with the characters that are in this story. Lord, may its truth speak to us even here today. Change us this morning as we follow after you. All these things I pray in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. All right, so we are jumping back in. We've, we've been going through the book of Acts um, this year, and so we are on Acts chapter 12. If you have your Bible, feel free to pull it out. Otherwise, it's going to be up on the screens as we read through this section here. Um, the first five verses, I know I just talked about the comedy that we're going to see in this, but I want to warn you, the first five verses is the introduction. It does take a serious tone, so I, I know I have a tendency to laugh at inappropriate times. Uh, I don't want you to laugh during these first five verses. After that, we'll get to the funny stuff. So, um, starting in verse 1, it says, About that time, Herod the king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. He killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. And when he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. This was during the days of unleavened bread. And when he had seized him, he put him in prison, delivering him over to four squads of soldiers to guard him, intending after the Passover to bring him out to the people. So Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. So, um, like I said, things are serious. There is persecution that's raging. If you have been with us through the book of Acts, we see God doing some amazing things through the church, the church going out and spreading the gospel. Um, but now we see that persecution is coming against the church, right? We see that Peter is captured and that James is killed. He's beheaded. Um, and when Peter is captured, um, it says that there are, what, four groups of soldiers, squads of soldiers. Um, so that is four groups of four different soldiers, 16 soldiers in total, that are on rotating shifts watching after Peter so that there's always at least four soldiers watching him. So he's basically in a maximum security prison after James had been killed here. And so the church sees this persecution and cries out to God, right? They recognize that they uh, don't have the power to bust Peter out of there, and so they go to the one who does have that power, and they cry out to the Lord. Earnest prayer was made to God by the church on behalf of Peter. So things are looking dark, but the church has not given up hope, and, uh, and we'll get to see how... Um, that is, is vindicated, how God vindicates that. So let's continue in verse six. It says, now when Herod was about to bring him out on that very night, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers bound with two chains and sentries before the door were guarding the prison. And behold, an angel of the Lord stood next to him and a light shone in the cell. He struck Peter on the side and woke him saying, get up quickly. And the chains fell off his hands. Okay, so the scene inside this prison is, is you have Peter and you have two soldiers. They're chained one to each of Peter's arms and they're all asleep in the cell. And then we have this bright light shine in the cell and this angel appear. Now, I don't know about you guys, but for my wife and I, we have blackout curtains in our room so that we can get a good night's sleep. And if you were to turn on the light, which has happened before, we generally wake up. When we, when we see a bright light, right? So here we have Peter sound asleep along with two other guards. An angel shows up in all of his angelic glory with a light shining. And Peter's just sleeping. He doesn't wake up after that. So what does the angel do? It, he wants to wake up Peter. So does he, you know, 
tap him on the shoulder, shake him a little bit. It says that he strikes him in the side. (laughs) He actually hits Peter to wake him up because he didn't wake up from the light. And the angel doesn't say much. He has three words for Peter. He says, get up quickly. Come on, we need to go, Peter. Let's get out of here. And then the chains miraculously fall off. And we can take that um, that the two guards didn't wake up either. So let's continue. Verse 8, it says, And the angel said to him, Dress yourself, put on your sandals. And he did so. And he said to him, Wrap your cloak around you and follow me. So Peter, get dressed. Come on, you're sleeping, you're in your PJs or whatever. Get dressed, get your shoes on. Come on, it's time to go. And he says, uh, Wrap your cloak around you. Now, nowadays we wear more form-fitting clothes like shorts and pants and things like that. But you imagine back in this time, uh, the common kind of Roman garb you've get You've got kind of this flowy robe type deal. And uh, so what the angel is saying, wrap your cloak around you. He's saying, we're going to have to run. And I don't want you tripping over your clothes. Okay, wrap your cloak around you. Let's go. Get your shoes on. We need to get out of here. Uh, so verse 9 says, and he went out and he followed him. Peter did not know that what was being done by the angel was real, but thought he was seeing a vision. So, so Peter is still, he's still groggy from being woken up. He's rubbing the sleep out of his eyes. He's probably rubbing his side also because an angel struck him to woke him up, right? And uh, does that sound familiar? Because uh, to me, I think of getting my kids ready in the morning <laughs> and I'm thinking through all these things. Okay, get your shoes on, come on, wa- brush your teeth, you know, get your water, make sure you have everything. And they're still kind of groggy, waking up, getting, getting through. We need to go. Let's get going quickly, Peter. Let's go. So, uh, verse 10, when they had passed the first and second guard, they came to the iron gate leading into the city. It opened for them of its own accord, and they went out and went along one street, and immediately the angel left him. Okay, so they got out with the two guards in the, in the cell with them. They didn't recognize them. They got out past the other two guards. It doesn't say how, but maybe they were sleeping too. We don't know. And they come to the entrance of the prison, which is a big iron gate, Now, earlier it says that the chains just fell off Peter. And it doesn't say that the iron gate, you know, that it's unlocked. And so they were able to, you know, maybe pick the lock and get out. It says they came to that iron gate and it opened of its own accord. It's it's miraculous what happens here. Um, So they leave, they get out of the prison, and then the angel disappears. He's gone. Verse 11 says, when Peter came to himself, he said, Now I'm sure that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from the hand of Herod and from all that the Jewish people were expecting. And and this is hilarious to me that Peter comes to himself and recognizes these things only after the angel is gone. All this stuff has happened and now he realizes, oh, oh, this... This is, this is real life, right? I mean, it's, it's like, you know, a kid coming home from the dentist after anesthesia. Like, is, is this real life? I, I don't know. Oh, yeah, this is, this is real life, Peter. He recognized that God had gotten him out of the prison. And although it's kind of funny, um, this is a profound statement that we'll get to a little bit later. Um, But for right now, let's continue in verse 12. When Peter realized this, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose other name is Mark, where there were many gathered and they were praying. So this is the perfect opportunity. The church is praying for him. I mean, it's the middle of the night, but they're up. They're praying for Peter. They want to see him released. And so Peter's like, I'm going to go there and I'm going to surprise him, right? I'm going to let him know God has gotten me out of the prison. 
So when he knocked at the door of the gateway, a servant girl named Rhoda came to answer. And recognizing Peter's voice, in her joy, she did not open the gate, but ran in and reported that Peter was standing at the gate. So here we have Peter. He's a fugitive, right? He's a wanted man. He's knocking on the door. He's probably trying not to make too much noise because it's the middle of the night. He doesn't want to wake anyone up and and them see that this fugitive is here. Um, And so he said, you know, guys, it's me. It's Peter. Let me in. And this poor little servant girl, Rhoda, she's so excited to hear that this is Peter that she doesn't even open the door for him. She just leaves him there and runs back inside to let everyone else know. And what was their response? They said to her, you're out of your mind. But she kept insisting that it was so, and they kept saying, it's his angel. But Peter continued knocking, and when they opened, they saw him and were amazed. Right, so, so the very people who were praying for Peter <laughs> told Rhoda that she was crazy. In fact, they were more willing to believe that it was an angel than that Peter had actually gotten out of prison and he was there at the door. Uh, and, and this is so funny because it says, Peter continued knocking. The whole time this is going down inside, Peter is knocking at the door, trying not to make a scene because he didn't know what was going on inside. It's not like it was a a screen door or a glass door. It's not like there was a peephole that he could see inside or that it was like the entrance to Oz or something that has this little uh, way that you can see inside. He didn't know. He just sees this door. He's knocking. He's letting him know, hey, it's me, Peter, while inside they're, they're fighting as to whether it's actually Peter at the door. But they do open the door, they see Peter, they recognize that it's him, and they're amazed, right? And yeah, little Rhoda was right. It was actually Peter. So find the, the last verse here in verse 17, it says, But motioning to them with his hands to be silent, he described to them how the Lord had brought him out of the prison. And he said, Tell these things to James and to the brothers. Then he departed and went to another place. So, The last uh, funny little anecdote here is that Peter motioned for them to be silent. So when they did actually see him, they were starting to, they were so excited, they were starting to make a lot of noise. And Peter's like, okay, okay, come on, calm down. I'll let you know what's going on, which I find kind of ironic because Peter himself didn't believe what had happened until after the angel had left, right? So it says that Peter went on his way after explaining what had happened. He went on his way to another place because Peter was on mission. Um, like he had said previously, he recognized that, Pete, that uh, God had gotten him out of prison, right? And therefore, there was a reason why God had done that. God wanted him out of that prison. He didn't want him to die. And um, Peter just recognized that because he was alive, there was more for him to do right? He was on mission for the Lord. And that is our story for this morning. I'd love to just end it right here and and let you know that, you know, God always provides a way out, right? That when you feel like you're in prison, that you have chains, that every single time you go to the Lord, he's going to free you. That um, when when you have people praying for you, that every single time that God's going to get you out of there, that even if you're half asleep, God is going to be the one doing the work to get you out every time. I'd love to say that, but it's not true. That's not what the story is telling us. Because what about James? In the first few verses, 
we see that James was beheaded by King Herod and Peter was put in prison. Out of all of the 12 apostles who followed Jesus through his ministry that Jesus had called to himself, um, there were three of them that are said to be the closest to Jesus. The, the gospel writers show them at some of the most pivotal points in Jesus's ministry. They show him there uh, when he's doing amazing miracles like reviving Jairus's daughter and when Jesus lifts the veil on his glory at the Mount of Transfiguration. They're there. Um, even in the Garden of Gethsemane when Jesus is crying out in agony to the Father to, to let this cup pass from me. These three apostles are there. And those, those apostles were James and Peter and John. And we see two of them here in this story. And uh, in this story, we see that this is the very first out of the 12 apostles to die a martyr's death, to die following Jesus and, and telling other people about who Jesus is. I, I just want us to, to feel the weight of what's going on here. Because while the gospel was going out, while God was doing awesome things and bringing lots of people into the church, um, now the world has turned against the church in persecution. And this was a huge blow to that scattered church that one of the apostles, right? I thought these guys were gonna be leading the church. One of the apostles is beheaded by the state. In fact, it was one of the apostles that, that Jesus knew closest, right? That didn't spare him from, from being killed when he was pursuing Jesus and telling others about him. So, so Peter, sitting in the cell, it, it, his life was truly in danger, right? He, he probably thought that this was the end for him because he had just seen that, that James had died. And that, uh, that funny statement that I had mentioned earlier where he talked about that he realized that, that God had gotten him out of prison, that just goes to show that he had resigned himself to saying, you know what, Lord, if, if this is your will that I die here like James has, then so be it. He, he was willing to die for the Lord. And it, it seemed inevitable that that's what was gonna happen. Um, in fact, in just the, the verses after what we read, um, it says that there was a great commotion in the prison after Peter had gotten out and that King Herod had all four of the guards who were watching after Peter killed because, they, because Peter got out. So while this is a lighthearted story, and I think that says something about the power of God, um, it's flanked by death, right? The, the frailty of this life is lingering in the background throughout this entire thing. I think uh, this, the, the humorous tone that it uses throughout these stories, it just goes to show that, that nothing really stands in God's way. That even at, at the darkest moments, that when man goes against God, right, this, this figurehead of King Herod killing those um, who were supposed to be leading the church, when it seems darkest that it's nothing to God. He can easily get Peter right out of that prison. No problem. The, the evil and the darkness in this story just magnifies how powerful our God is. And, and God still had more for Peter to do. Peter's story and his part to play in God's story wasn't over. And 
since you're here with us today, I can say the same for you, that your story is not over, that God has more for you to do. Peter believes something that uh, the Apostle Paul would later go on to say in his letter to the Philippians. Uh, Philippians 1.21, he says, For me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. Now, we say that we are simply about Jesus, and that's for all of life, that our, our, our entire life, our entire being is simply about Jesus. And that's what Paul says, that to live is Christ and to die is gain. Do you believe that? Like, do you really believe that? That to live is Christ and that to die is gain because then you see Jesus face to face. Like, would dying really be gain? I I have to ask myself the same question. Even today, Right After church, as I'm driving home, if I were to get in an accident, would dying be gain? Do I really believe that? And if I believe that to live is Christ, then does my life align with that? Right? Do, do the things that I do throughout my day, do they show that Christ is my life? Or do, do they show that I value just living another day? Right? That I'm living on survival instinct just to get by? Or... Am I pursuing Jesus with all that I have? And when Peter says to live is Christ and to die is gain, he's not sitting on the beach sipping Mai Tais. It's not the middle of summer for him. He's not on vacation. Uh, Just a, a few short verses later in that letter to the Philippians, he says, For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake, engaged in the same conflict you saw I had, and now hear that I still have. So Paul is saying, you know that I have been suffering for following Jesus. Even now I still suffer And when he talks to this church, he says, I hear that that you're not only counted worthy to believe, but to suffer. He sees it as a glory. Paul sees that suffering for Christ is a part of the purpose of his life. That it's for his glory that he suffers. And later in that same letter, Paul says uh, one thing that he wants. In in chapter 3, verse 10, it says, that I may know him, that I may know Jesus and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Paul says that he wants to become like Jesus in his death. Paul, do you know how Jesus died? Right, you're saying you want to suffer? Like, did you see the way that Jesus suffered? And you're saying you want that. Not that you're willing to go through with it, but you actually want that? Like, who, who says that? Are you out of your mind? But Peter agrees. Because we see that the night before he was going to go to trial, and, and the night before he was going to be killed, what do you see him doing? He's asleep. He's fast asleep. It, it, Put yourself there. Like, if you knew that tomorrow you were going to be sentenced to death for telling other people about Jesus, do you think you'd sleep well tonight? Or would you be too stressed out to even sleep at all? I look at this. I see Paul. I see 
Peter, I see James, and I, I just have to question, like, how does this make any sense, right? It seems otherworldly. It seems alien. Like, are these guys even human, right? It's, it's almost as if you're a new creation in Christ, as if something changed for them. Because this only makes sense if they know that there is something more valuable than their life. This idea that to live is Christ and, and to die is gain, that there is something worth giving my entire life to and there's something worth dying for. This idea means that they know that there's something more valuable than the here and now. And we need to agree with the scriptures that, that this life is not about this life. Right? And in order to agree with it, we need to, to rearrange our priorities and say what God says is most valuable is most valuable, not just the things that we want. No longer do we pursue things like fame and, and fortune or, or the blessings that God gives us, right? And turn them into idols. Good things like family. And this doesn't mean that we don't pursue excellence or material things or, or things like that. Um, it means that those pursuits are in service to God. Because we do. We want to earn money because we want to steward it wisely. We want to invest it in things that uh, further the kingdom of God. You know, I think about how this church, how Austin Oaks Church has given uh, that through Africa New Life, we have built multiple church buildings over in Africa. And we get to see the amazing things that God is doing through those churches and how that's exploded, how people are coming to Christ because due in part to how we have given financially. And frankly, I mean, if we didn't earn, if each of us individually did not earn enough money that we could take care of ourselves and then give on top of that, it wouldn't be possible. So it's not that we don't go after money. It's not that we don't own things, that we don't have material things. It's that those things are in service to God, right? That we don't get um, our sense of self-worth from those things because God gives us responsibilities, Right? I'm a father, I have three young kids, and I have a responsibility to lead them and to guide them. And uh, if I start to find my identity, my self-worth in the way that I father my children, I've turned them into an idol. But if I turn to Jesus and I, and I say, I want to pursue you, and you have given me these good gifts of a family, and so I want to uh, be an excellent father as much as I can, uh, it's in pursuit, it's in service to Jesus not just in service to my children. And we see that in a character that we kind of skipped over earlier in this story, in Mary. Mary, she had a big house, a house big enough so that the church could come and they could have a prayer gathering together. And you'd imagine during this time of persecution, at any moment, Roman soldiers could have been there knocking on her door to take everyone away. But Mary had enough financial means, she had enough material goods that she was able to open her doors and say, church, we know we're under persecution, come to my house, let's pray. You know, you can imagine she was preparing meals for the people who were there. It was an all-night prayer vigil, right? But she, although she had riches in this world, she used those things 
for Jesus' sake. And, and directly because of that, we see the church came together in prayer, in crying out to God, in earnest prayer to God for Peter. And because of that, we see God do these amazing things, that the chains were broken, that Peter is led out of the jail. So all these things come together. We, we, we recognize that, that the things that we have, the blessings that we have, the material goods that we have are in service to God. And Mary here, she used what she had for the kingdom as well. So what are you pursuing with your life? Is it only the things of this world or are those things in service to God? What are your goals? Is it like your personal fulfillment? Is it uh, personal growth? Because those can be good things if we're trying to figure out what does God want from me? How am I best to live my life in service to God? But it can also become an idol. We can easily turn from God to the things that we own if it's simply just for our own pleasure. James has some really harsh words to say about this. Um, in James chapter four, he says, what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and don't have, so you murder. You covet and can't obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You don't have because you don't ask, and you ask and you don't receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. Are you just pursuing your passions? Are the things that you're asking God for just for your own personal benefit? Or for they, are they for the good, the mission that you're on for Christ? Submit yourselves to God. And that's what we see the church doing here also. The church went to God in prayer. They saw prayer as their battlefield. They didn't just take up arms against the Roman soldiers to get Peter back. No, they went to the God who had the power to free Peter. And I'm not saying that you don't ever take action, okay? But you go to God first, and out of that, then you act accordingly. We see that the church showed its love for Peter. They showed their love for Peter in this, this prayer, this earnest prayer towards God. Because we see also that, that Jesus does that for us today as well, even now. Jesus shows his love by interceding for us. Hebrews 7 says that he is able, Jesus is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. Just like the priests of old who went to God on behalf of the people, right now, Jesus is before the Father. He's before God praying for you, interceding for you. That's how he shows his love for you today is by going to God and interceding for you. And here we see the church doing the same thing for Peter. In his book, The Cost of Discipleship, Dietrich Bonhoeffer says that when Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. It may be a death like that of the first disciples who had to leave home and work to follow him, or it may be a death like Luther's who had to leave the monastery and go out into the world, but it's the same death every time, death in Jesus Christ, the death of the old man at his call. 
this only makes sense if there's something more valuable than life. If we're required to to walk through a death in order to gain Christ, then he must be worth more than what we already have. And, And Jesus said as much in Matthew 16. He said, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world but forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? What does this world really have to offer when you stop and think about it? What are you pursuing? What are you going after with your life? What are you afraid of losing in a wholehearted pursuit of following after Jesus? As I ask you that, I I, want to tell you that whatever comes to your mind, the things that you're afraid of giving up, that God, you can take everything except, except that. Please don't take that. Whatever comes to mind, I tell you, Christ will bear the cost. He has borne the cost of your sin if you belong to him. He has paid the penalty of death on the cross on your behalf. But more than that, I mean that the things that you give up for the sake of following after him that he tells you you need to give up in order to pursue him. He will bear that cost and he will prove to be more valuable than anything else that you ever give up. Right now, our culture may be hostile towards Christianity in a number of different ways, but I doubt that we are called to give up our lives, to actually die for the sake of sharing Jesus. That, that may happen later, but right now I don't think we're called to die for him. So what does it mean to live for him? Right? If we don't have to sacrifice our, our life by dying, what do we have to sacrifice? What have we sacrificed? Let me ask, what have you given up in your pursuit of Jesus? Have you ever given anything up or does your life look the same? Can you name anything? Something small like a a TV show or maybe a drink or something bigger like a relationship or a bad habit or a pattern of sin in your life. Um, Maybe it's just one night a week for small group or a prayer gathering or opening up your home so that you can invite people in to share a meal and build a relationship so that they can meet and know and follow Jesus. What have you given up? As I ask that, maybe lots of things come to mind for you. Maybe it feels like you've given up so much and it's hard to hold on any longer. But let me encourage you by pointing you back to our story because it was on the night before Peter was going to be sentenced to death that God got him out of that prison. The night before he was going to be taken to trial. Because God is faithful, both in life and in death. If he calls us to die for him, he's faithful. If he calls us to live for him another day, he's faithful. To live is Christ, and to die is gain. Colossians 3 tells us that if then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. 
Set your mind on things above, not on the things of this earth, for you've died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. He's more valuable than anything you give up. Christ will bear the cost. It was, uh, it was Jim Elliott, a missionary to Ecuador, who was martyred, actually, by telling other people about Jesus. He said this. He said, He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep <laughs> to gain what he cannot lose, to be with Jesus, to give this life. It's going to end someday. To give it for the sake of being with Jesus eternally. Because like we read in Hebrews, Christ is able to save to the uttermost everything. Absolutely, he can save those who draw near to God through him. So let's, let's draw near to God today. And I, I challenge you during this time, we're gonna pray, we're gonna sing one more song and worship to God. I just ask you to go to God and, and, and ask him, what is it, Lord, that you're calling me to do? If not to die for you right now, then, then what do you have for me in life? Is there something I need to give up? Maybe you know that already. Pray that you would loosen the, the grip that you have on those things. That you could say wholeheartedly, to live is Christ and to die is gain. Ask the Lord, what, what, what do you want for me in, in continuing to pursue you and in following you? Or what, what do I need to do to know you more? Or maybe if you don't know Jesus this morning, it just means, how do I meet this Jesus? And if that's the case, I'd love to talk to you more about that. I'd love to introduce you to him or anyone on the stage, you wanna grab any of us after the service or really anyone in the congregation, you can, you can ask about that and we can tell you about how to meet Jesus. But let's go to him. Let's draw near to God this morning. Let's pray. Lord God, you are faithful. You are faithful in life. You are faithful in death. You save us to the uttermost. You are complete. <laughs> God, pray that you would convict us where we see areas in our life that don't align with what you say. Lord, even as, as Rebecca had led us in saying that, that we do believe, but help our unbelief. God, that we could say wholeheartedly to live is Christ and to die is gain. We know that you come to us in, in gentleness when we draw near to you, so you don't come condemning us, but you will convict to lead us to repentance, to make us more like you so we want to hear from you this morning. Speak to us, God. Show us how to follow you. Show us how to know you more. For some, show us how to meet you for the first time. We love you. We praise you, our faithful God. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Amen.